Good evening, Juanita Phillips with ABC News. A slight change to a piece of legislation could hold the key to justice in a 20-year murder mystery. Three Aboriginal children were murdered in the New South Wales town of Bowraville in the early 90s, but a killer hasn't been convicted. A parliamentary committee today released a report into the case. It's made 15 recommendations, including changing the state's double jeopardy law to allow all three murders to be tried at the same time. Ben Worsley reports. For the families of Barrowville's murdered children, today proved a precious step. It was a very emotional day, a very happy day, and I'm just so proud to be here. On the floor of Parliament, emotions also ran high from the MPs who've been investigating the case. It was powerful stuff. Um, and it was powerful stuff because there have been two and a half decades of injustice. It's 23 years since Colleen Walker-Craig, Evelyn Greenup and Clinton Speedy Giroux were taken. A man was tried separately for two of the murders but acquitted. The key to this elusive justice being obtained is that the hearing of the evidence in all three murders be considered at the same time and in the same court. Parliament's Law and Justice Committee believes a simple change to the state's double jeopardy law could allow that to happen. There is one word in one statute that stops the evidence from all three cases being heard together in the one trial. If uh, Ivan Malak's trials were heard separately, there would be a likelihood or a possibility that he would not have been convicted. The committee hasn't recommended a retrial, but it wants any consideration of one done independently of government. It's also urging greater training on Aboriginal cultural awareness for police, politicians and lawyers. We understand you've been through incredibly difficult circumstances. You know, our hearts and minds and sorrow goes to you. Uh, and obviously the government will consider the report and, and bring forward an appropriate response. I, th I feel reassured that, yes, we're going to do something. Yeah, the light's getting a bit bigger there. Yeah. The government has six months to respond. Ben Worsley, ABC News, Sydney. Hi guys, welcome to the True Crime Sisters podcast. Thank you so much to everyone who's been listening. It's really blown us away all the amazing feedback we've been getting. Your kind reviews and messages are so appreciated and we'll never get sick of seeing them. Make sure if you're not following us on social media, you click the description below and check out all our links. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. It's a great way that you can stay in contact with us directly or chat with us to request cases. You can also send us an email at truecrimesisters at gmail.com. I also just wanted to say a big, huge thank you to our first Patreon supporter, Andrew. We cannot thank you enough and we'll be releasing our first Patreon-only episode on the 5th of September. So if you're interested in that, make sure you check out our description below for the link. Before we start, just a quick warning that one of the victims in tonight's episode is a very young child. So if you're sensitive to those kind of cases, you might be best off tuning out today and joining us next week instead. So with the formalities out of the way, let's get on to today's case. Today we are talking about the Bowerville murders. If you do find today's case interesting, I just wanted to point you in the direction of a podcast that is actually completely dedicated to this case. It's produced by the Australian newspaper. It's just called Bowerville and it's a really informative podcast. This is a really important case for Australia. It's finally getting the media attention it should have had right from the start. Like many countries, Australia has its issues. Our Indigenous people are not fairly represented in the media and this case really highlights some of the issues permeating our society. 
This case also highlights how police have responded to cases where Indigenous people have gone missing. There are good detectives on the case now, and the current lead detective, Gary Jublin, actually has stated that if the missing children were white, the case probably would have been solved right back at the start. In this case, three Indigenous children went missing and were murdered within a five-month period, and the police didn't take the case seriously at the start. There was always one suspect for the three cases, but the cases were always investigated and tried as separate homicides, which deeply affected the outcomes of the cases. Bowerville is a small town in New South Wales. It's known for its attractions, such as its historic theatre, which is a cute old school looking cinema run completely by volunteers. Thanks to this case, the town is now also known for the extreme segregation between the white people and the indigenous people cohabitating in that town. In 2011, the population of Bowerville was 1,208. Approximately 15% of the population of the town are Indigenous people, which is higher than the average Australian town. Bowerville is one of the most disadvantaged and low socioeconomic towns in New South Wales. There are very high unemployment rates and limited jobs available. The rates at which children drop out of school and do not complete their education are also very high. There are two sides of Bowerville. One features your average, small, tidy suburban houses and is where the white Australians live, and the other side is more run down and is nicknamed the Mission or the Mish to locals, and that's where the Indigenous Australians live. On the 13th of September 1990, there was a party taking place in the Mission on a road that was then known as Cemetery Road. This road has now been renamed. There was heavy drinking and lots of people at the party that night. One of the partygoers was 16-year-old Colleen Walker, a beautiful Indigenous girl who was known to be very popular and outgoing. Another partygoer that night had been nicknamed by the Indigenous people the King and was the supplier of alcohol and marijuana for a lot of the youth of Bowerville. We've decided for the sake of a potential fair retrial that we will not be saying his name on our podcast, but it isn't hard to find out if you wanted to hit Google and find that. He was a big white man who was 25 years old at the time, Colleen knew the suspect fairly well as he had previously dated and had a child with her aunt. That night at the party, he was reportedly making moves on 16-year-old Colleen and trying to encourage her to join him back at his caravan. This was not the first time Colleen had been propositioned by the suspect, who obviously we previously mentioned as the king, but we're obviously not going to call him that, so we would just use the name the suspect. And he was nine years Colleen's senior. Earlier that year, she had gone with a girlfriend to the suspect's caravan for a few drinks and had slept in the bed with her female friend. Later that night, she had reportedly woken up, extremely groggy, to the suspect attempting to have sex with her. Luckily, she was able to fend him off before he could go any further. So at the September party, Colleen's friends report that the suspect was begging her to stay the night with him in his caravan again. She repeatedly rebuffed him. She was supposed to be leaving later that night to stay in another town with friends. At around midnight, Colleen was seen leaving the party by walking down a laneway that ran along the side of the house. At the same time, it was reported that the suspect was walking along the other side of the house in the same direction as Colleen. This was the last time Colleen was seen. If you couple the fact that Colleen had been rejecting the suspect's advances all night long with the fact that they were both seen heading off in the exact same direction that night. This seems like something that would be strongly investigated by police once they heard Colleen had gone missing, but this was not the case. On the 17th of September, Colleen Walker was reported missing by her aunt Muriel. She reports that police did not take this report seriously, insisting that Colleen had just gone walkabout. 
Back in 1990, there was animosity between the Indigenous residents of Bowerville and the police from the area, and many suggest that this is the real reason that police did not investigate Colleen's case more thoroughly at the time. Of course, this is speculation on our part, but has been repeatedly mentioned by many of the people associated with the case. And even that gone walkabout thing, that's actually, it's not directly racist, but you, gone walkabout yeah. is like an Indigenous, oh, she gone walkabout, like don't, don't worry about her. It's not like, oh, don't worry, she's run away, which yeah. is what they would say to... They're I, almost using the language against them. Yeah, I yeah. believe. I, that's just, once again, that's my personal opinion. But yeah. as soon as I heard gone walkabout, I was like, no, I think that that's, yeah, that's yeah. a bit not right. The next child to go missing in Bowerville disappeared in similar circumstances. The average person could not argue that the similarities between the two cases warranted serious investigation, but the police of Bowerville appeared to disagree. On the 3rd of October, 1990, there was another party taking place on Cemetery Road, similar to the first party. While the attendees were predominantly the Indigenous people of the mission, the suspect was again in attendance. Also in attendance at the party was a beautiful four-year-old girl named Evelyn Greenup. With her gorgeous curls and big eyes, Evelyn was known to be shy and a very sweet little girl. Evelyn lived with her mother Rebecca and grandmother Patricia along with her two brothers Aidan and Aaron in the house where the party was taking place that night. This was the usual type of party for the mission. The party involved drinking, socialising and having a good time. People would crash for the night wherever they could find space. The suspect was a man that got around with the women of Barrowville and had previously had sexual relations with both Rebecca and Patricia, so he was quite well known to the family. Later in the night, as things got rowdy, Rebecca decided to take her three kids into the bedroom with her to go to sleep. Rebecca admits that she was fairly intoxicated and has indicated that she feels potentially she may have even been drugged. As the party started to slow down a bit, the suspect remained around the house. Patricia reportedly spotted him looking in the window of the house and asked him to go home. Later that night, Patricia heard Evelyn crying. She got up to go and see what was going on, but the door to Rebecca's room was locked. She knocked on the door and called out to Rebecca, but nobody came to the door. She then heard a loud thud followed by silence. Evelyn was no longer crying. Not thinking much of it at the time, Patricia went back to bed. Another party attendee who was staying the night, Fiona Duckett, was attending to her baby and making a bottle when she saw the suspect leave Rebecca's room. She says that he was moving very quickly through the house in the direction of the front door. She followed him to see what was going on, but by the time she reached the front door and looked either way down the street, he was gone. She returned to the kitchen and made her baby a bottle before heading back to bed. Rebecca awoke the next morning and noticed that her pants were pulled right down. Her two sons, Aidan and Aaron, were playing in the bedroom but her daughter Evelyn was nowhere to be seen. Rebecca felt like her hangover was far more extreme than she was used to, and this coupled with the pants pulled down made her think that she may have been drugged, as we said before. Neither of Evelyn's brothers knew where she was. Rebecca searched for her daughter at other houses in the mission, hoping that she had just wandered off. As time went on, she became more and more frantic. Meanwhile, back at the house, the suspect had arrived to pick up a stereo he had left there. He told Patricia he had spent the night there on the couch, although nobody else remembered seeing him there. As Rebecca searched, she stumbled across something in the front yard, one of her daughter's pink shoes. They reported the disappearance to police, who were again reportedly uninterested in the missing young girl. According to reports, there were searches for Evelyn, although they were unsuccessful. There was no sign of the beautiful little girl, 
Her family were understandably devastated by her disappearance. So two young people were missing within two months of each other with the same person reported to be hanging around in the last moments they were heard or seen. Reportedly, these disappearances did not even make it into the news, which is just devastating if you think about the amount of media coverage other missing children cases have received. It really makes you think, why are some cases so prominent in the media and others we hear absolutely nothing about? Even local police wouldn't admit there was something sinister going on at this point. And you can imagine two... if. Two children missing from one small town. If that did happen in most small towns and it, and it wasn't an Indigenous child, I genuinely think that would be a big thing. Yeah, Two I agree. children missing within two months. Yeah. Like whether it's in the media or like police interests, I think it would have been big in both those aspects. Yeah, I agree. It's very sad, quite disturbing as well. Clinton Speedy Juro was known as a happy-go-lucky kid. He was very sporty, fit, strong and fast. He was also a great artist and a happy kid. He was known as a real all-rounder. Like Colleen, he was also 16 years old. In January 1991, there was another party in the Mission community held at a block of public housing flats. Clinton was in attendance along with his girlfriend, Callie, and another familiar character, the suspect. The partygoers were drinking and socialising for a while when the party started to wind down. The suspect suggested to Kelly that she should come back to his caravan and continue to party. She wouldn't leave without her boyfriend. The suspect suggested she should go and get Clinton and he could join them. She complied and the three went back to the suspect's caravan at approximately 3am, which was parked at his parents' house. They watched some TV and eventually Clinton and Kelly fell asleep on the double bed while the suspect was going to take the fold-out single bed. When Kelly woke up in the morning at approximately 8.40am, she immediately noticed that her shorts and underwear had been removed. Not only that, but her boyfriend Clinton was not in the bed anymore. The suspect had already left for work and she was alone. She quickly found her pants and saw that Clinton's shoes were still in the caravan. She took the shoes to Clinton's dad, Thomas Juro, who also searched all day for Clinton, but he was nowhere to be found. Clinton was reported missing. Little did Thomas and Kelly know there had been a sighting of what is now thought to have been Clinton earlier that morning. At 5am, while Kelly was passed out in the caravan, two delivery drivers came around a corner around 200 metres from the suspect's caravan when they noticed a large white man standing over an Indigenous boy that was laying in the road. When the men asked the white man if he needed help, they were told that the young boy was just drunk and he had already called the police. They noticed a station wagon with its boot door up on the side of the road. The men later reported the incident to police. Years later, one of the men would see a picture of the suspect in a local newspaper and he would pinpoint the suspect as the large white man he saw that night. On the 18th of February 1991, Clinton was found deceased off the nearby Congarini Road, still clothed in the outfit that he was wearing the night he went missing. He also had a pillow slip that matched the bedding from the suspect's caravan shoved down the front of his pants. The suspect's caravan wasn't searched until weeks after Clinton went missing and in that time the suspect had been allowed to come and go from the caravan as he pleased and remove property, more specifically a set of weights. When the caravan was searched, human blood was found on the bedhead. Unfortunately, because of the small sample side and poor DNA techniques used back in 1991, the blood could not be linked to Clinton. On the 8th of April, the suspect was arrested and charged with the murder of Clinton's speedy Duro. But this wasn't where the charges or evidence stopped. 
On the 17th of April, a man who was fishing in the, in the Nambuka River right off Congarini Road snagged four weighted down plastic bags from the bottom of the water. They contained Colleen's clothing. Unfortunately, her body was not found. Another 10 days passed before a third discovery was made along that same stretch of road, three kilometres from where the body of Clinton Speedy Duro had been found. Locals stumbled across the body of Evelyn Greenup, laying with her pink shoe that matched the one found in the yard the morning after she went missing. Both Evelyn and Clinton had the same injuries to their skulls. On October 16th, the suspect was also charged with the murder of Evelyn Greenup. Despite the fact that the suspect had been accused and charged with both of the murders of Clinton and Evelyn, the judge presiding over the case that hearing the evidence of both murders in the same trial would make it impossible for the suspect to get a fair trial. The family strongly disagreed with this and Clinton's uncle stated this decision meant that the suspect had won his trial before it started. The way the cases were presented did not paint the suspect as the serial killer he was suspected of being, but took each case as if it were the only time. Why did they do that? Was there a reason? I don't remember seeing the bigger reason behind that. Um, I think it's suspected that it was down to racism, quite frankly. Like the fact there's two, ki- two kids, two young people, they've been injured in a very similar way. They're found in a very similar place. They both disappeared from parties and the suspect was at both those parties. How... Does that not get tried together? That just baffles me. It was as if the police at the time were suggesting that a separate killer had taken three Indigenous kids from the exact same area, killed them in the same manner and dumped them or their clothing off the same road, all by chance. Many people suggested that if the missing children were white, the trial would have been completely different, and this appears to be true. When the suspect was tried for the murder of Clinton, the defence completely undermined witness and girlfriend Kelly making a point of her state of intoxication. Any evidence she was able to give was downplayed and pushed aside. The same was the case for any of the other Indigenous party attendees from that night. All were completely undermined due to their intoxication. The credibility of all Indigenous witnesses was questioned by the defence. The suspect's defence was that he heard someone leave the caravan early that morning and assumed that it was Clinton. The prosecution argued that the suspect had taken his mother's keys from her handbag and driven down to Congarini Road with Clinton's body. The prosecution's theory was that the suspect had drugged Callie and was sexually assaulting her when Clinton woke up and interrupted. They believed that the suspect had then killed him by striking him on the head with a weight from the set that he removed later from the caravan. A similar situation was thought to have taken place in Evelyn's case, but of course that was not allowed to be mentioned at Clinton's trial. The suspect was acquitted. In 1997, a strike force was assembled to reinvestigate the disappearance of the three Bowerville children. This is when well-known homicide detective Gary Jubilin joined the case. You may remember him as the lead detective in the William Tyrrell disappearance we covered in episode 7. In 2004, a coronial inquest was heard at this point the suspect was recharged with the murder of Evelyn Greenup with the trial set to go ahead in 2006. Like with the suspect's trial over the murder of Clinton Speedy Duro, Evelyn's trial also contained no mention of the other two suspected victims of the suspect. Again, witnesses in the case were undermined because of cultural differences, as well as the time that had passed between the murders and the trial. And again, the suspect was acquitted of the murder. It was later found by Dr Diana Eads that some of the cultural practices of the Indigenous people were actually detrimental to the way they were perceived in court. 
There was little attempt on the part of the justice system to take into account cultural differences between white Australia and the Indigenous community. A report was written by Dr Eads to the New South Wales Law Reform Commission that tried to explain some of the gestures that were typical to Indigenous witnesses, including a lack of eye contact and long silences that may have been misinterpreted by the court. Dr Eads suggested that the jury should have been prepped on how to understand the way Indigenous witnesses would communicate. The case of the murdered Bowerville children has been compared to the case of the Beaumont children. Again, three children disappeared and were suspected murdered, but one case received a huge amount of publicity at the time and one didn't. And obviously that's just, that sums it up right there. Three children, three children, and... Most Australians who are interested in this sort of thing will will know it with the Beaumont children. Absolutely. And not many will know. I feel like that's internationally known. I've mm. heard other podcasters like from the US, from oh, everywhere really? cover the Beaumont Interesting. Case. Thankfully now this case is gaining the attention that it never received back in 1990 and 1991 when the murders occurred. And because of the change to double jeopardy laws in Australia, it is possible that the main suspect will eventually be retried and the cases will be heard together. Gary Jublin has spoken openly about his hope that the cases will be heard together and justice will be found for the families in the near future. Gary Jublin has stated that he does not believe the case was handled correctly from the start. He has publicly stated that he believes the three murders are the work of one killer. It would be far too coincidental for three children to be kidnapped from the same area, killed in the same manner and dumped in the same area. Even though Colleen still has not been found, the fact that her clothes were found only metres from where Clinton's body was discovered speaks volumes. Jubilin, who is very experienced with homicide cases, believes that Bowerville murders should be heard together as a serial murder case. He believes a killer has been allowed to walk free. And obviously we don't know, like, we believe that Jubilin's talking about who we're calling the suspect, but he hasn't publicly named who he's saying when he says that he believes it was the same person. Um, Although many people have named the suspect. Absolutely, Publicly, yeah. he's been named. Oh, he's been named, but Gary Jubilin hasn't named him. Yeah. I'm just, I think that's important. Yeah. For two decades, the murders in Barrowville have divided the town and the police, and there's been no closure for the families. This crime has brought up the issue of racism in Australia as the Indigenous families from the area ask themselves and the rest of Australia, why didn't anyone care about our children? There is a great TV special about this case called Justice, Just Us, which you can find on YouTube where the families of the missing children share their stories and how the murders have affected them over the years. In Australia, our double jeopardy laws changed in 2006, so where before nobody could be tried twice for the same offence, in Australia, if fresh and compelling evidence of someone's guilt is found, we can apply for a second trial. One of the cases cited when this change was being brought about was reportedly the Bowerville case, which was a perfect example of why the double jeopardy law should have been challenged. For evidence to be considered fresh and compelling, there are some stipulations. The evidence must not have been present in the previous proceedings, nor can it have been known evidence from the time. It must also be reliable, substantial and contextual. This means it isn't easy to get a second trial to be heard, but it is possible, which personally I think is a positive thing for the legal system here in Australia. While two Australian Attorney Generals have decided not to apply to retry this case, in 2016, Attorney General Gabrielle Upton asked the Court of Appeals to consider retrying the main suspect in the case. 
Earlier this year, in February, the ABC reported that the main suspect in the murder of the three Barrowville children has been charged and in fact will be tried again, hopefully for all three murders at the same time. Hopefully now the time is coming for the families of the three Barrowville children to have a voice in this situation. For so many years, decisions have been made without any say from the people who have been affected the most by this tragic situation. This case brings up uncomfortable questions about the state of things in our country, and I'm sure there are similar prejudices all over the world. If nothing else, I hope this case makes us all think about why these poor children were left behind by the justice system. Why were the families failed, and how can we change this? And I really hope they do find justice for this these families and obviously the suspect has an answer for everything so in that um, podcast we mentioned earlier which is just called Barrowville um, they actually have a phone conversation it goes for about 45 minutes and it's actually with the suspect and the interviewer and he literally has an answer for everything so he's had a long time to come up mm, with those answers though like I well, would 25 just say, years like, yeah like obviously like we we don't know 100% for fact that he did it but I think, of course, he has an answer for everything. Yeah. He's had so much time to come up with it. No, I just find it interesting. Like, if you're looking to just hear a little bit more about who the suspect is and um, and what his view is, then it is definitely worth checking out that podcast. It's a as really well. good podcast. And it's definitely sort of, check it out. Yeah, and I feel like, and he doesn't really have like a whole different story for everything. He just has a little answer to every. It's just like, well, actually, that person's wrong, and they were proved wrong, and it's it's nothing. It, he doesn't have a different story. He was at no. these parties. He but he was de- he was definitely the last person kind of seen lingering around all the situations. But even he has an answer for that because he believes he wasn't. Of he, course. Yeah, but of I'm just he yeah believes. No, that. no, but I'm just sort of saying there are a couple of other sightings that haven't been sort confirmed, of confirmed, which is obviously why we haven't put them in because they're not confirmed. Yeah. But some people did think they saw. Well, um, some people think they saw Evelyn. But I feel like generally it's his friends that are saying things Mm. like people who are the supporters of of the suspect who are also coincidentally the white people of the town are the people that had these extra sightings. Like you have to wonder whose interest are they serving as well. Yeah, exactly. And that's why it is so interesting just to hear it from his mouth as well. And also in this this other podcast, you do get to hear all the interviews with the people who lived on the mission um, with friends of the victims and family of the victims as well so it's, it's definitely a fair representation of everybody in the case I feel and you if you um did want to know more as well you can always just type Barrowville into YouTube and I found a lot of interesting um documentaries and stuff on there too so it's a very very interesting case and, and it's not finished yet so not at all and luckily it seems as though he has been recharged so hopefully another trial will come about and we will find some justice for the family that would be awesome and obviously we'll keep you guys updated as well if we hear of anything if anything significant happens so we'll definitely keep you updated on this case thank you for listening to episode 11 of the true crime sisters podcast make sure you tune in next week for episode 12 and join harry later in the week for another episode of unsolved australia minisodes until then thank you and please stay safe